um, the Greek name of it, uh, apocalypse, has been used uh, in our languages, in French and English and other languages, as a term for uh, something that is cataclysmic, something that is major destruction, everything falls apart, and it's, it's a scary word. Um, but uh, the word actually means revelation. I mean, the book is meant to be something that reveals something, that clarifies something, that makes things uh, more easily understood to us. So it, it is clearly not meant to be an obscure, confusing book. It's meant to be a clarifying, simple-to-understand book. So what's, what's happened? Well, um, one of my professors in seminary um, taught us that uh, children typically understand the book of Revelation way better than adults. And the reason is that when children uh, are confronted to the book, they understand uh, instinctively, naturally, that it's a book of pictures. That uh, the message is in the big stories, the big pictures that are being drawn and not in the details. And as we grow up, as we become more sophisticated, we think that it's all in the details and we miss the picture. And then we get into trying to figure out what every single detail in that book, in every picture or every story that we find in the book of Revelation, what, it, what is its secret meaning? What is the code that we're trying to break? And, uh, and then it becomes completely confusing and we, don't, we cannot make sense of the book. But in fact, it's a very simple book. It's painting pictures through, um, not with drawing physically, but it's telling you of details just to help you, to, just to give you uh, um, uh, like color in a picture. It's, it's just to make the picture more interesting. It's just to help you have a, uh, an interesting story. Like when you tell a story, you always include uh, uh, details and elements that really have, they don't play any role in what's happening. They don't have any particular meaning. It's just it makes the story more interesting. In the same way, the book of Revelation is painting pictures for us, or it's a bit like drama, or you have different scenes that are being shown to you. It's a bit like going to the theater, and you know, between different scenes in a, in a, in a, uh, in a play, you have the, 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 the curtains go down, and then they go up, and you have a new scene. The, the background has changed, maybe the characters have changed, and, but the story is continuing. So in the same way, the book of Revelation functions a bit like that. You have picture after picture, and each picture is painted with a number of details that are just there to make the picture interesting. But the point of the picture is actually very simple. So that's the first uh, thing I wanted to say. The second is that uh, the book of Revelation is written for the church. It, actually, it is actually written to the church. Um, as you may remember from last year, uh, when you studied the uh, letters to the churches, um, John um, has a revelation of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, and the Lord Jesus Christ tells him, write letters. You know, uh, I'm going to dictate and you copy the letters and you send them to the different churches. How many churches? Seven. As you probably know by now, seven is a symbolic number in the book of Revelation and in many other pieces of literature. That means completeness, fullness. The fact that there are seven churches is, is a way of indicating that the letters that are being written are really for the whole church. They're not written just for this little group of believers in that town in what we call today Turkey uh, or that other town of the same area, but it's actually written for the whole church. So the book of Revelation 
is a letter that the Lord Jesus is uh, revealing to John for the church. And it's meant to clarify, to explain to this church the meaning of their, its experience, what it's living through, what is going on in the world, what's going on in history around them, and what is the meaning of it all. And in particular, it's written to a church that is facing persecution, that is facing a number of temptations and seductions in the society where they live in, especially the type of seductions that are typical of cities. Um, and he's writing to them to explain to them what's, what is the real meaning in God's plan of all this stuff, and to encourage them and strengthen them in this to remain faithful with a promise of what's happening in the end, which is a happy ending. But I'm not going to spoil that. You have to read the rest of the book. So, um, when, um, as we come to this passage in chapter 8 and 9, and uh, I'm sure you've, as you, as you were uh, listening to the reading, I'm sure you thought that, you know, you hear about those locusts that have a face of man and a crown of God, and you're missing, what is that about? And I'm not going to tell you now. You have to pay attention. Um, it, I will mention, I will talk about it later. But it just, it, it can be very confusing. We look at this and we think, this is really weird. Um, it's word, weirder than science, science fiction, but actually it's not. It's very simple. So we'll get to that. Uh, what is, what is in particularly important in the book of Revelation, and that's why it is called Revelation, uh, unveiling, it's, it's a bit like, as if you had a, again, take the image of a theater, where you have a play on the theater, and you know when you have a play, you always have uh, other forms of curtains or things like that that hide what's happening in the background. And it's just as if this book is taking that away and tells you this is what it means. This is what's going on in the background. And the background of that is that God and uh, uh, his, uh, his angels and his, uh, uh, his people are, are waging a war against spiritual forces that are behind those uh, uh, persecutors and behind the seduction, behind the temptations, and who are trying to thwart God's plan of salvation. But in the end, you know what? God wins. I mean, honestly, that's one of those plots where uh, there's no secret to the ending. It's not like a mystery novel where you really don't want to know the end until you get there. You want to be able to know. There's no, there's no mystery here. Um, God wins. And in fact, the book of Revelation is telling you that God has been in control all along and is in control all along and he's actually fulfilling his plan, his, um, his plan for the world. And nothing can stop him. Nothing can thwart him. And in fact, his very enemies, the devil and, 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 uh, and his minions, are simply fulfilling God's plan and ac- accomplishing what he wants in spite of them. They're trying to rebel, to, to be uh, rebellious and to uh, prevent God from achieving his plans. But they actually, as they do that... God's plan progresses toward its end point, which is the um, judgment of the world and the recreation of the whole world and the establishment of a perfect, um, um, perfect communion between God and his people and eternal bliss together in fellowship. So having said this, um, let's look now at uh, our passage in, in the book of Revelation, in uh, chapter 8 
and 9. Now, chapter 8 uh, begins with the ending of the scene that was presented to John before. Um, as you, um, I don't know if, I assume you went through the seven seals in one chunk. Um, so you already know, you've been through a cycle of seven scenes that each scene uh, is being connected to one of the seals, one of the seals is broken, and there's something that happens, and then the second seal. And um, as you probably know, the seventh seal is, is the climax of that, of that cycle, and um, it is when the uh, final eschatological uh, fulfillment of, of what is demonstrated by the seals is happening. Um, except that when you get to that seventh seal, what do you have? Silence. That's a bit frustrating. <laughs> you know, um, I'm sure you've been explaining that the, the, the seventh seal, that you have, what you have is you have the same story with different cycles and the same kind of ideas is being repeated and presented in a different way. And the seventh one is the big one where everything is made clear and final and and when you get there, it's silence. There are different ways of understanding this silence. I think the clear the, or the, the, the one that makes most sense is, uh, is first that in that seventh seal, final judgment is coming. God is, is present and the whole world becomes quiet in his presence. That's one of the things that is being said. Another one is John doesn't want to tell you yet what the ending is. He wants you to read the other parts where he goes through the same cycle so that eventually you get to the ending. So I'm not going to spoil it for you. Um, there's a transition between the seven seals and the, um, the series, a cycle of seven trumpets, or it's usually called the seven trumpets. Technically, it's more the seven angels who are blowing the trumpets. Um, there's a, uh, it's not an interlude, but it's, it's a transition scene. And it's, it's one that is a bit, uh, um, that can be a bit um, um, strange because it is not really clearly connected to one of the cycles. It's this in intermediate thing, and uh, um, it's not always, I mean, it, it may be a bit uh, hard to find out what it is, but it's actually, again, it's relatively simple. First, you see an angel. An angel um, is a servant of God, in the heavenly realm. That's really what it is. It is the kind of being who does what God wants him to do at the moment when God wants him to do, the way God wants him to do. It's basically God working through, uh, uh, through those, um, and those beings are the ones doing what God is doing. So you have one angel who takes up a censer, something that allows you to burn incense, and um, he, um, uh, that censer, um, uh, it, um, is uh, the, the smoke that comes out of it. You know, that's what it's used to do. You burn the incense so you have smoke. Um, the smoke uh, is mixed with the prayers of the saints, the prayers that have been um, uh, uh, introduced earlier in the book, in chapter 6 in particular. Um, and uh, this is rising before the throne of God, and it's, therefore it's a symbol of the prayers coming up to God and uh, being... Um, um, facilitated, if you like, by the angel. So there's a certainty that those prayers are reaching God. Now, 
in the Old Testament already, you had the use of incense in the temple, in the tabernacle, and it already was a symbol of prayer. Prayer that was constant. God's, uh, people's, God's people's prayers were uh, symbolically represented by this incense that was burning on, on, um, before God. And that was a holy thing. It's not something to take that God took lightly. In fact, it was a holy uh, element of what was going on in the tabernacle. It was holy enough that only fire that came directly from God could be used to burn that incense. And it was holy enough that when the sons of Aaron uh, started burning incense on something else than this, they were immediately punished with death. Fire from heaven. So God takes that very seriously. He takes seriously the prayers of the saints. Now, that's the first picture that we're given about this angel. And then the, the story moves, and we see that angel taking fire from the altar that is before uh, the throne. And uh, uh, that altar is, is made of gold, which is a symbol of purity and perfection. Um, and he takes fire from that altar, mixes it, uh, in the censer, and then throws the censer to the, on the earth. Um, again, the fire from the altar is a, a pure, holy reality, and in particular, uh, in the imagery of the temple and in the imagery of the tabernacle, the fire of the altar is a purifying reality. Remember the story when um, uh, Isaiah has this vision in the temple, and he recognizes his sinfulness. And one of the angels, one of the seraphim, takes a, a burning coal from the altar, touches his mouth and says, you are clean, you are purified. Your sin has been taken away. It's been atoned for. It's the same imagery that is used here. The fire from the altar is a purifying force. And so the angel throws that fire on the earth as a sign that God's judgment, but that God's judgment um, uh, is intended to lead to purification, is happening, is reaching the earth. And this is confirmed by the presence of thunder and rumbling and lightning and earthquakes, which are all images attached to the end of the time when God comes in judgment. When God comes in judgment, when God's presence is there in a judgment context in the, in the, in the Old Testament in particular, those type of things happen. An example of that would be uh, Mount Sinai. After the people of Israel fled Egypt, they come to the mountain, uh, to, to, the, the, to the mountain range of Sinai, and in particular to that mountain. And on that mountain, there's a cloud, and there's fire, and lightning, and thunder, and uh, it's terrifying. And in fact, it's God speaking to his people, and it's God's presence being there. And it's so terrifying because God is a holy God. Um, he's a devouring fire. And, and the people of God know they're sinful. They are terrified by it. And what do they do? You know, do you remember what they did? They say, um, please, God, stop talking to us directly. And uh, we'll send Moses up the mountain, and you can talk to him. And, you know, he'll come back and tell us what you said, okay? We're, we're happy to um, 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 nominate him for that position. But it's the same imagery. It's the presence of God, but it's the, this, this holy, pure presence that cannot tolerate any sin or evil in his presence. So it is threatening to sinful people. So this is a sign that God's judgment is, upon, is coming upon the earth. 
is a sign that God is going to act and work to punish evil and to purify the earth um, through that process. So this is announcing, if you'd like, it's like a preview or, or a, uh, a teaser that kind of gives you a bit the idea of what's happening after. Before we move to uh, what follows, I just want to say one, one more thing about the book of Acts in general, but it's uh, the book of Revelation in general, and especially that, that passage. Uh, the book of Revelation is using a lot of imagery taken from the Old Testament. It's, it's, it's uh, uh, taking many, many, many stories and many pictures and symbols that have been used throughout the Old Testament, um, especially the book of uh, um, uh, Exodus and some of the prophets uh, like uh, Isaiah or Joel or Daniel. And uh, this, this particular section is drawing heavily from the Exodus and Joel, as you probably have recognized when you heard the two readings. You probably heard echoes of the prophecy of Joel in the text of Revelation. So he's, 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 he's reusing, if you like. He's not recycling, but he's, he's, he's reusing those images for several reasons. First, um, he's talking to people who would have known the Old Testament, and those would be their, their if you like, it's their language. It's their world. Their, they know those pictures. They know where they're coming from. It makes sense to them. That's the first one. Uh, the second is that's a way of, of uh, saying that what he's describing here, what is happening here, is the fulfillment of all the things that were said or promised in the Old Testament. He's showing continuity and accomplishment, fulfillment in this. So we come to verse 6 of chapter 8, and here we are told that the seven angels who stand before the throne of God uh, um, uh, are ready, are prepared to blow seven trumpets. Um, uh, let me say a few things about those angels. First, um, they're standing before the throne of God. They're angels who are in the presence of God. They're servants who are constantly in his presence and in his service. The fact that they're seven is another sign of com completeness. It's not just that they are literally only seven angelic beings who are going to do the work. It's that they're, it's representing the whole army of God being there, the whole um, the, the servants of God who are at his uh, um, at his disposal. That also means that they're going to do exactly what wants them to do, when God wants them to do, and the way God, you know, the way God wants them to do, and no more or no longer. So we know that what happens, what they do is exactly what God wants, and it is happening exactly the way God has planned, the way he's ordering it, and the way uh, uh, he's, he wants it to be done. A bit like, if you remember in the Old Testament, the story of, of Job, um, when the devil comes before God and says, um, and, and, God says huh? and God says to him, have you seen my servant Job? And the devil says, well, yeah, no, no. and you know, they, they kind of uh, bargain a bit on, barter what, on what they're, they're going to do. But the, the point is, even the devil can do only what God allows him to do. God says, yes, you can do this to him. Okay, you want to try him? You want to test him? I'll let you do it. But this is what you can do and no more. So even more in the case of those angels who are his servants and who are in his very presence before his throne. 
Now the trumpets. What is the imagery behind the trumpets? Um, personally, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll confess something here tonight. I actually really don't like uh, uh, trumpets as a mu- musical instrument. Um, and I, I, I hate to say that because one of my brothers is actually a professional trumpet player. Um, so don't repeat it. And don't tell him. But I really don't like trumpets. Um, to me, when I hear trumpets, it reminds me of a traffic jam in KL and people are honking. Um, or other towns where people use their horns even more than KL, uh, like Dhaka. Um, but that's the first image that comes to me. The other image I associate trumpets with is jazz. Um, for some reason, you know how our brains work. Um, but that's absolutely not what's in view here, of course. Um, the background for the trumpets is in the Old Testament, trumpets are, are connected and are used, especially in the context of army and warfare. They are used also in the context of the temple uh, and the tabernacle, but in fact, even in that context, it has to be understood as an army or warfare context because Israel in the, in the desert is actually organized as an army. And uh, the trumpets are there to, uh, um, if you like, to give orders. That's, that's what they use as a means of communication to say, this is what you have to do now or now. It's especially used to gather the troops and to send them to, uh, to, to battle. Or it is used to warn against an army coming to fight. So it's used for both a warning, alarm, and uh, um, gathering and mobilizing and sending. Uh, I think that's what is particularly behind uh, this passage, um, um, what the story that comes really behind it, is the story of, Jer- of Jericho and Joshua. The people of Israel have just spent 40 years in the desert, in the wilderness, and they're finally coming to the promised land. Moses has died. Joshua has taken leadership. And the first... Um, their first uh, step, if you like, in the promised land and in the, in the um, uh, duty of conquering the land, co- the conquest, is uh, the first place is Jericho. That's the, you know, you're crossing the river and, oh, there's Jericho just on the other side. And Jericho is a fortified city. It has walls and um, a large population. It's actually not an easy enemy. It's actually a pretty hard target. In fact, it's so hard that even Joshua is hesitating on what to do and it's as he goes out of the camp and, uh, uh, that he meets the uh, angel or the, uh, the angel of the Lord who is the captain of the armies of God. And it's in that context that God tells him through that angel that uh, he shouldn't worry because um, they actually are not going to fight a battle, but God will do it for them. And in fact, the teaching of that um, um, story as a whole, and in fact through it, the, the, the whole of the book of Joshua, is that... It's not Israel with its own weapons and its own abilities that are going to win the land, that are going to conquer the land. It's God who will do it for them. And in fact, there is good ground to think that this angel, the captain of the armies of the Lord, is a, um, uh, um, if you like, is a, uh, a, a, either a, a picture of what Christ will be doing or more likely a um, what we call a pre-incarnate Christophany, which means it's... Uh, you know, the figure of the angel of the Lord of the, in the Old Testament is probably Christ himself uh, being introduced to his people, but before the incarnation, before he became man. 
Um, but anyway, the, picture, the, the point here is that God will fight and the God will win. And his people are, are, will be, um, um, in some ways, they will be passive. They will be just looking at him doing that. Uh, so it's to teach them a lesson as they start on that um, campaign of conquest. The first battle, God says, you're not even going to fight that battle. Not at all. I'll take care of it. And it's just to tell them, you know, and it will be the same in the other battles. Even if you're involved in terms of military warfare, I'm still the one who fights the battle. And so they're going to fight the battle with trumpets. I guess that confirms that trumpets are not a pleasant instrument. Um, they're, they're a weapon. So the way it works, God says you've, you will, uh, the whole, the whole um, people will be gathered in, in, in order in such and such way, and the priests will be there with the trumpets, and you will walk around the city, and you'll blow the trumpet. And they walk around the city a number of times, Andy, how many times? Seven. And how many days? Seven. No. I've already heard that number somewhere. Um, and on the seventh day, they blow the trumpet seven times. <laughs> Very weird. Um, and the walls come down, fall down, you know. They don't have to, uh, co- uh, you know, climb over the walls or whatever. They just walk around for seven days. They blow those trumpets, and boom, the walls come fall down. And actually, this is what will happen later in the book when you hear the seventh trumpet. So it's clearly the story behind this is the story of Jericho and uh, what God did there and how this is a picture of what God will do uh, at the end of times for his people. So the first trumpet is blown by the first angel and we hear that fire and hail and blood fall on the earth and a third of the earth and a third of all the plants of different kinds are destroyed fire and hail are are symbols of uh, judgment in the Old Testament Uh, fire fell on Sodom and Gomorrah hail fell on some of the enemies of Israel and turned uh, around a battle Uh, and of course blood would be another sign of, of judgment and punishment um, and so a third of the earth and a third of the plants are destroyed. Then we have the second angel blowing his trumpet. And we have uh, something like a mountain on fire that is thrown into the sea. The sea turns to blood, or a third of the sea turns to blood. Um, uh, and a third of the fish die, and a third of the ships are destroyed. It's another judgment. Um, Honestly, exactly the mountain, we're not exactly sure what it means, the mountain falling from the sky. But um, um, mountain is, 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 is used in the Old Testament often as uh, a place where um, um, God is present. Um, and also it's a symbol that is associated with the uh, judgment of God. When God comes on his mountain, this is when he starts judging the world. Um, and of course fire is also, is also there and the mountain and fire is obviously recalls Mount Sinai and a number of other imagery but what is important here is the sea is being um, um, hit by this and a third of the, the, the fish in other words a third of what lives in the, in the, in the sea, it's not just fish technically uh, dies and a third of uh, boats that were on the sea are destroyed um, just one thing about this in the first 
the first angel, it's only nature that is being harmed. But of course, indirectly, human beings are being harmed by that. You know, if a third of the earth was, 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 uh, was destroyed, at least was burned up and there was no grass and trees, that would clearly affect human beings. Okay? It would be hard to eat. Um, and it would be hard to, to farm and have, uh, and have livestock. So uh, it's affecting them. In the second, uh, the sea is touched, but also ships. Ships are a symbol of uh, trade, commerce. And in the Old Testament, it's a symbol of wealth. Um, ships are the way to do trading across countries, and that's actually how you make money. Um, it's not the person who produces the good. It's not the person who sells the good. It's the person who tra- transports the good that actually makes the money. As uh, Singapore understood very well. Um, and so that judgment is not only affecting creation, it's also affecting men and the affairs of men and their ability to, to build wealth and power and gain comfort and peace through that. Third trumpet, a great star called Wormwood falls on the rivers and the springs. The rivers and the springs become bitter and uh, because of that, some people have to drink that water and they die. Now, um, wormwood uh, is, uh, is, is a type of wood that is very bitter, um, but it's not toxic. However, um, in the Bible, the notion of uh, water being bitter is usually associated with water that would be that would not be good to drink and would actually make you sick or kill you. Uh, but in particular, there's one echo of the story of the people of Israel in the desert where um, they're thirsty and they get to a place where there's water, but the water is bitter, which means they cannot drink it. It's probably brackish, technically. Um, and what happened there is the people complain. What, God, did you bring us in the desert to kill us all? I mean, we could have stayed in Egypt and life was so much better there. You're bringing us here to have us die of thirst. And that's the context in which... Um, God uh, uh, orders Moses to strike the stone and out of the stone comes water and Paul will tell us um, that that stone was uh, represented Christ and that Christ took the punishment for the people and out of that punishment came water and life the water of life Um, so the idea of bitterness is is, is referring back to that uh, story a bit um and, of course, rivers and springs um, are necessary to, to life. And uh, people die because they have to drink, but that water is not good for drinking, and they die out of it. And fourth, uh, the fourth trumpet, uh, a third of the sun, a third of the moon, a third of the stars are being affected. And, therefore, a third of the light is being uh, blotted out, as well as a third of the day and a third of the night. Um, now, we've looked a bit at kind of what the imagery is, is implying. Uh, let's look at what it means in the bigger picture. Uh, first, the number seven is a number of completeness, uh, but more in terms of um, uh, fullness and absoluteness, and, um, um, and it has to do usually with uh, more um, spiritual realities and uh, the big plan of God. But here, uh, the number four is also a number of completeness, especially in relationship to natural things. In, in, in the book of Revelation, the number four is often associated with nature and the world and, uh, uh, and its, its fullness. And it's, it's probably related to that in the, when, the vision where you have the four elders 
who worship God, and the fact that the uh, um, some of the angelic beings have four faces. Uh, and so here, you, 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 of the seven trumpets, we have two series. We have first the first four trumpets that are that we've just been through, and they all affect nature. They all affect the world creation. And then we will have three that are particularly affecting human beings. And in fact, they will be set apart as being woes. But right now we are at those four. So those four talk about a full judgment, a complete judgment of nature. And in fact, the four elements that are being singled out, um, land, sea, um, rivers, and the sky, are the four parts, if you like, of the natural world. At least in the way the Bible presents it. And so, um, um, the whole of creation will be affected by this judgment. In other words, every single part or aspect of creation will be affected by this judgment. And therefore, human beings who depend on those things. And it's also interesting to, 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 to note that in the Old Testament, uh, especially in the, uh, in the, the story of creation, uh, those, those different elements appear. And uh, in the story of creation, the way creation is, uh, happens, we see God uh, created, um, uh, it creates the, the matter, if you like, and it's, it's presented like water, like a big ocean, and out of that ocean comes the, the ground and all those things. Um, and then God populates those areas. The, the land will be, uh, uh, emerges with plants, and then God puts animals, and then eventually we'll put human beings. Uh, the sea is populated with fish, the sky, you know, the air is populated with the, with the birds, but the, the sky, the bigger sky, is populated by the sun, the moon, and the stars. So um, there's an echo of that here. Here God is, uh, his, God's judgment is affecting his, hand, his whole creation and not just the space, if you like, but also the inhabitants of that space. They're all affected, and indirectly through them, human beings are also affected. The fact it's only a third that is affected means that the judgment is not yet total. It's not yet the eschatological final judgment upon the world. It is a judgment that prepares for that. It's a judgment that is in continuity with it, but it's not yet that full final judgment. Um, in theology, we call that a proleptic judgment. It means it's speaking about the final reality but it's, 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 uh, it's a presence of that final reality before the end. And so um, God in his mercy is not yet punishing the world the way it deserves. He's not bringing the final judgment where the fire will burn this whole world and through this fire will emerge a new creation. It's, it's, it's temporary, if you like. It's uh, timely. It's not eschatological and eternal yet. And later we'll see that it's important that this is not final yet. Um, and there we have a bit of a, another interlude, another inter intermission, where an eagle, we, we hear that John says, I heard an eagle, and that eagle was flying, and an eagle is in the middle of the sky, probably meaning in the uh, center of the sky where the sun would be in, on, um, uh, at noon. And that eagle uh, calls, you know, whoa, 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 um, so a triple um, announcement of woe uh, to those who dwell on the earth. 
Um, so now, the picture is, is not of judgment of nature, but of men, of people themselves. And the fact that you have this little um, break and, and this announcement is increasing the intensity of what's happening. It's highlighting it. It's meaning that there's something special or even, uh, even worse than what has happened yet. And, and in fact, the, the eagle is announcing three woes, but we're going to have only two. We're going to have two more trumpets. And the final one is postponed for even much later uh, in chapter 11, I believe. Uh, uh, so there, there is even more. So it's creating an, uh, a tension. It's creating um, um, suspense. It's creating uh, an increased intensity in what's happening, uh, in the meaning of what's happening, but also in our expectation. Um, and even between the two woes that are presented there, there is uh, an escalation. There is an increase in intensity. So the fifth angel... A trumpet uh, blows his trumpet, and a star from heaven falls on the earth, and is given a key. And with that key, that star can open the uh, shaft of the bottomless pit. So first, uh, it's clearly not a star like in uh, a shooting star. Uh, it's clearly a heavenly being who is um, who is coming down, and is given a job to do. So it's probably an angel, actually. And the notion of falling is not a symbol of moral. Failure. It's not a fallen angel, like we usually say. What it means is just that's what it takes for a star to come to earth. It's falling. It's not flying. It's falling. Um, so it's just saying that it's coming down to earth. That's all it's meaning. Um, and it's given the key of a bottomless pit. And out of that, of that pit comes out smoke. And that's heavy smoke. Serious smoke. Um, so much smoke that it, it, it kind of uh, blots out the sun. Um, and out of that smoke come out an army of locusts. Um, first, it's important to notice that um, what's coming out of that pit obviously has been kept in the pit for a long time. And it's not free to come out when it wants. It's when God decides it, he sends his servant to open the pit and release what's in there. You can see in that the fact that in some ways, those, uh, whatever is coming out of this, uh, have been prepared long in advance and have been kept so that for the right moment. But they are entirely under God's control. And so those locusts um, come, out of, come out of the smoke and they are described to us um, in verses uh, 3 and 7 and 9. Um, in a way, that is a bit scary. Let's put it this way. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen locusts, natural locusts. It's a bug. It's an insect. Um, and it's the kind of insect that cannot do you harm. I mean, they don't sting. They don't bite. And they're pretty easy to squish. So one locust, two, three locusts, ten locusts, that's not very impressive. I know. It's just an army of bugs. Okay? Now, locusts tend to come with many friends. In fact, they enjoy traveling with billions of friends. And when they do, they destroy everything. Now, they still can sting you or bite you. You know, they, they cannot do any harm to you physically themselves. 
But they can destroy everything you need to live. They can eat every food, every plant. They can strip the land from anything green that you would need to survive. Hence, what's happening in Joel. In Joel, God is using actual locusts to punish his people, to, um, to bring famine, to bring hunger, to destroy their ability to feed themselves. And in Joel, they are presented like this army that nothing can stop. They can climb walls. They can enter into your home. Even if you use weapons to try to, to uh, push them away, there's nothing you can do. And in fact, in parts of the world where there are locust swarms, when there is a swarm coming, the only thing they can do is watch and cry and wait for them to, move, to, 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 to get away. So that, that would be pretty bad news in the first place, that to have locusts coming. Worse than that, usually when locusts come, they come and they stay for a day or two until they've eaten everything that was green, and then they move on, and they eat something else. So it's, it's, it's a very temporary and short period of time, and in God's mercy, often plants can grow again enough leaves to survive, and eventually uh, you can... You can have food again. But here, they're staying for five months. Which, uh, by the way, is, is about the time, um, that's the time frame for locust swarms, the, the time they survive, uh, the time they're active. So it's really saying, in the normal cycle of locust swarm, all of that is spent in one place, and they keep on eating and chewing. Now, those are, particular, are unusual, because in fact, they're not allowed to touch anything green any plant. So it's a bit of taking an image and, and kind of taking it and turning it around. The locust is the, the, the absolute symbol of destruction of green things, and they're completely harmless to people. And here they're turned into something that cannot touch what is green, but will harm people. So again, that's very clear that those are not actual locusts. They're symbolic of something else. And they are presented to us with having the, a power like that of a scorpion. In other words, they have a sting, and the sting hurts. Now, just as much as um, uh, locusts are not a very threatening and dangerous insect, scorpions are scary beasts. Now, I don't know if you have scorpions here in Malaysia, um, but I come from a part of France where we have scorpions, and I work in Africa where they have scorpions that you really don't want to have to deal with. In fact, they prefer pretty nasty snakes to those scorpions. One of the problems with scorpions is that usually you don't see them until it's too late. Usually snakes, you get a sense, you know, you see them before and you might be able to do something to avoid them. Not scorpions. Um, not, not all scorpions are deadly, but they're all painful. And that's what is in view here. Those scorpions are to torment people but they cannot kill them. So you've seen how God is controlling them. You cannot eat the plants. You can uh, make people's lives miserable, but you cannot kill them. In fact, the not killing them is almost part of the judgment and the punishment. It's part of the curse. Because we're told that uh, their torment is so hor and horrible that people will wish for death. They would rather die than go through that pain. And even that, is, uh, they are deprived of. God says that death will run away from them, will flee away from them. They will not be able to die. They will have to suffer. 
In the end, we are told that those locusts have a king, and the name of that king is given to us. And the, the name uh, in Greek means the destroyer. And it's very clear that here we have in view a, um, a demonic figure, a demonic person, some type of devil. And so it's very likely that the notion of the locust here is not, again, it's clearly not physical locusts or some kind of weird genetic experiment that goes wrong, like you see in some sci-fi movies. Um, but they're actually demonic forces. Now, they might be demons themselves or they might be things that are uh, empowered by demonic forces, but whatever, they're demonic forces. But even those demonic forces are controlled by God. There's one more way in which they are limited in what they can do. They can torment men for, uh, for five months. They cannot kill them. They cannot destroy what is green. And they are to torment only the people who do not have the seal of God on their forehead. In other words, they cannot touch God's people. They cannot touch the church. They are meant, they are sent to be a judgment and a punishment on the unbelieving world. On the very people who persecute the church, on the very people who um, uh, are um, the, the church's enemies. Now you know that in the book of Revelation you have only two categories of people. Those who have the seal of God on their forehead and those who have the sign of the, the, sign of the beast. The number, the mark of the beast. Uh, the mark of the beast being a the demonic counterfeit of what God does. Now, why, what, what does it mean to have the seal of God on your forehead or the mark of the beast? Well, it's just a mark of ownership. That's what we do with things that we own and that we uh, want to make sure everybody knows we own and that we especially want to make sure that nobody takes without permission. We write our name on things or we put a sticker with our name on things. Okay? So this is my shirt. You know, nobody touches it. I know you're all jealous, but um, this is mine. So that's what it means. Those belong to God, and the locusts cannot affect them. And finally, the sixth uh, angel and trumpet. And here we are told of four angels, so a new set of angels, that have been prepared from forever for one task. And they've been waiting to do the task and they've been prepared and they are being even uh, um, uh, uh, what is the word that I'm looking for? Anyway, uh, they've, been, they've been kept in certain place for that very task and now they are being released. Now they will finally get to do their job and what is their job? Is to kill a third of mankind. And those four angels don't come alone. They don't go alone. You know, it's not the four of them. They're actually coming with a whole army. And again, the numbers are symbolical. And basically the notion here is that it's a huge army. And they are tasked, tasked to kill, one again, once again, a third of mankind. On your third. Now that army uh, is, is um, riding horses. Uh, and you have to know that uh, before the invention of tanks and uh, uh, machine guns and so on, uh, cavalry was the most effective, most potent um, uh, core of, of military warfare. 
um, because not only does the person riding the horse, uh, is he able to do a lot of things and move quickly and is high enough that it's harder to hit him, but the horse itself can become a weapon in some ways. You know, the, the horses are big, they're quick. If, if they, they hit you, 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 know, you get out of the way and they can trample and so on. But, um, so they, they, it's not just an army, but it's, an ar- it's the most powerful type of army you can have at the time. Um, and it's so powerful that those, those horses can kill people just with what's coming out of their mouth. And what's coming out of their mouth is fire, smoke, and sulfur. Again, things that are symbols in the Old Testament of God's judgment and that are used to destroy utterly uh, things or cities and purify the place. And that's especially true of Sodom and Gomorrah. But what is particularly annoying with those horses is, is, is not only that uh, their mouth are, you know, what's coming out of their mouth is enough uh, to kill you, but uh, usually uh, with cavalry, when, once the horseman has passed you, you're safe from him. It's the front of the horse and the front of the guy who's dangerous. Once they've passed you, there's nothing they can do to you, except those horses, their tails are like snakes. So even the rear part, even the back is dangerous. So even once they've passed you, they're still dangerous for you. They're nasty animals. So you see the the gradation of judgment and destruction. We start first with nature being affected and indirectly people being affected because of that. And then we move to a judgment where uh, people are affected but in a non-deadly manner, yet uh, so horrendous that they wish it would be deadly. And finally you have a deadly um, um, plague of people being uh, hurt and killed, a third of the people. So gradation. So what's going to happen in the seventh um, will be even worse than that. But um, we're not going to see that today. Um, Now, as I said, a third, the fact that it's only a third of people and the land that are affected means that the judgment is not yet complete. It's not yet eschatological. That judgment is coming later. But it's preparing for that. It's of the same uh, nature. If, if, if it's the same kind, but it's not yet the full one. And here in this chapter, we are told that uh, the reason why God is, is, is judging the earth in this way, the re- what he's trying to achieve through that, or what is the, the aim of that, is that people would repent. So on the one hand... God is responding to the prayers of his people against those who oppress them and, 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 um, and, and uh, um, make, um, I mean, kill them. So there's, there's a notion of bringing justice against those people. But at the same time, in the same context, there's the notion to bring them to repentance. That's also... Um, reminiscent of what's happening in the Exodus when, when with the ten plagues of Egypt. Each plague is meant to bring repentance, to be submission to God's will, to God's authority, and in the context of the Exodus, uh, abandonment of the false gods of Egypt. In fact, many of the plagues have, uh, uh, are directly connected to the gods of Egypt and are clearly judgments against the, 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 the many gods of Egypt. Um, um, but just like in Egypt, instead of hearing and understanding, 
mankind refuses to repent. Mankind refuses to let go of their idols, of their false worship. Uh, human beings refuse to let go of their immoral life, murder and sorcery and, and uh, sexual immorality and thievery. And we are even told that what is behind this false worship and the consequences in, in those um, sins is demonic forces, evil spirits. And so just like Egypt, those people who oppress God's people, who persecute them, refuse to let go. And that's where our text ends. So, quickly, what do we learn in this text? Many things, of course. One is that God will judge the earth in the end, it's true, but that's actually God is already um, uh, active in judging the earth. Disasters what we call natural disasters are part of God's curse against sinners, against idol worshippers. But the judgment is not final yet. And so now is still a time when people should be able to repent. God's judgment is also in a response to his people's prayers, asking him to intervene, to do something. You have a t-shirt that says, How long, O Lord? Well, that's the prayer of the martyrs under the altar. How long? How long before you actually finally judge this world once for, once for all, you know, once for good? Well, he is judging, but in a non-final way. And it's still time to repent. So God is answering the prayers of the saints already now. His judgment is already at work now, but it's not yet the final judgment. However, we know that that final judgment is coming. That's one thing. Another thing is that we know that God is in control. Whatever happens in this story is entirely and completely controlled by God. It has been planned by God. It has been organized from all eternity. It's being worked out according to God's will, exactly according to God's will, and nothing beyond it. And it's doing what it's supposed to be doing. And finally, though we haven't gotten to the seven trumpet, but we, we have a preview of what's happening with the seven seals. And as I said, we kind of know the ending anyway. Um, we know that in the end, God will judge the world, and God will rule the world, and that Christ wins. In fact, Christ has won. He has won the battle for his church, for his church's sake, on the cross. That's already done. And if we belong to God, if we are part of the people that God has elected, has chosen from all eternity, we are safe. But if we do not belong to him, even all these evil things will not be sufficient to bring us to repentance. Nothing will. So as Christians, we know that we're safe. As Christians, we understand that Suffering is part of our calling as Christians. You know, in, in the seven seals, the, the, the church is also included in the sufferings. That's part of being on, in this world. We are called to be suffering persecution and oppression and opposition and um, people mocking us and all these kind of things. But Christ is on the throne. It's not a sign that he is failing to do his job. It's not a sign that he doesn't love us. 
it is a sign that in his patience, he has not yet brought final judgment to bear upon this world. Because he hasn't, done, he hasn't finished what he's doing now. He hasn't finished gathering his people and preparing his bride so that on the day when he returns, he can present her to his father without blemish. In all of this, we know that God is sovereign in all things. That God has a good plan and that he's fulfilling this plan. And we know that God is with us and he's watching over us and he's caring for us and he's responding to our prayers. Praise be to God.